So, uh, I'm looking at this next sutta that I want to go through, and it's it's one of my favorites uh, for for various reasons, some of which are somewhat perverse. Um, but uh, and I'm realizing, wow, I could I could spend a, a day at least a weekend. A week. I don't know. I could spend a lot of time with this one sutta there. There's a lot in it. It's called the simile of the saw. And I was thinking about how, you know, how in very simple terms you could characterize some of these suttas kind of like, oh, the Yankees won today. I don't know if they won, but let's just hope they did. Let's assume they did. And someone could say, okay, the Yankees won. Great. That's all they need to know, right? On the other hand, someone might say, oh man, there was this double play, you should have seen the way Gregorius turned this double play, and man, uh, Sabathia was pitching, he had this curveball, and and that, and man, Aaron judges the home run, and you've never seen a home, you know, when you start to, and if you're into baseball, you want to know all that, that's what brings it alive, it's not just the score, you want to, you want to go to the game, you want to be, experience it. And with this sutta, I could tell you that what the Buddha says in this sutta is, don't get angry. And then we could move to the next sutta and we'd be done. They'd be like, just don't get angry, all right? Just, it's not helpful. But I'm going to tell you more than that. I'm going to give you the whole play-by-play. I'm actually, I'm not going to give you the whole play-by-play. We're going to have to skip a couple of innings because this is, this is like an extra inning game. My, my niece's husband, uh, you know, said he went to a Yankee game last year and it went into overtime. overtime. And I said, Mandeep, Mandeep, it's extra innings. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to train him to be a, to be a real American. But he, he understands cricket, so, you know, I got to give him something on that one. Because that one is like over my head. So, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll give you a, f- a few of the, f- for me, the fun details in here. Uh, of course, it starts thus, have I heard. And on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetis Grove, Anattapindikas Park. And you can actually read about this, uh, this place, Anattapindikas Park. Anattapindika was the Buddhist foremost lay disciple, a very wealthy businessman, and he was very generous with the Buddha. And the Buddha spent many of his winters, the rains retreats, in this place. So many, many of the suttas take place in in this particular, um, it's really a monastery. But I'll I'll give you the, the opening here. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Malia Faguna, so venerable means he was a monk, the Venerable Malia Faguna was associating overmuch with bhikkhunis. Bhikkhunis are the nuns. The monk was hanging out too much with the nuns. So right, in, right away, you know there is trouble. And he's hanging out so much with the nuns that he's like defending them against people who might say something negative and, and they defend him. And, and, and so uh, there's a couple little details that, again, I just find interesting. So it says, then 
a certain bhikkhu, so bhikkhu is a monk, then, then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side and told the Blessed One what was taking place. Now what's striking about this is many of the people in this sutta are named, but this guy is not named. He's just called a certain bhikkhu because he's ratting out Molia Faguna. And they don't want to preserve his name as a rat for their, all time. You know, it's like he did the right thing. We're not going to get him in trouble, you know, where people are going to really that guy. So I just, it's just these funny little things that you start to see. So, uh, and this guy's name, Molia Faguna, it just kind of gets me. Uh, just like most of the names sort of are like, oh, that's like Anaruda, Ananda, but Molia Faguna. I'm always like, it sounds like an Italian insult to me, you know. <laughs> ah, Faguna, eh? You know, so, but, I don't know. What they, they probably, <laughs> they would have been like, well, Griffin is pretty weird too, you know, so I don't know what you are. Anyway, so, so Faguna, as he's known, comes to the Buddha, and the Buddha admonishes him. And, and he's basically, you know, the problem is if you hang around with the nuns too much, after a while you want to like fool around with the nuns. And that's, what, and that's ultimately what happened, although that's not in the sutta. We just find that out later in the commentaries. He left, he st- left the robes and went back to the home life. But the Buddha says to him, Faguna, it is not proper for you, a clansman gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness to associate overmuch with bhikkhunis. Now, just talk about cultural change. At this time, being homeless was considered a positive thing. You know, you became a monk and you became homeless. And it's like, wow, you're really living the life, you know, here. Therefore, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. You should, you know, not think about getting married to one. Herein you should train thus, my mind will remain unaffected. I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare, the person who is abusing the monks, with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. And he goes on further. He says, if anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, a clod with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, You should abandon any desires and thoughts based on the household life, and you should train thus, my mind will remain unaffected. So, you know, it's very striking, and this is is a, a pretty powerful and striking sutta, which is very challenging. And so uh, when I was faced with trying to write about this, I actually talked to some monks about this thing, and like, how are we supposed to take this? And they pointed out, because my first thought was, wait, you know, these women are being attacked. Shouldn't I be protecting them? And they said, first of all, this is meant more as a teaching about your attitude, you know. And look at what the Buddha is actually saying. He says, your mind should remain unaffected. He never says you shouldn't protect them physically doesn't say you shouldn't defend them. He doesn't really talk about that, you know. So that's not really the point. The point is to really watch what your, happens to your mind. 
because it's not likely that the nuns are going to be attacked in this way. The thing is, right now, you know, people, someone says, oh, that nun, you know, she's not meditating very much or whatever. And, and Faguna's like, hey, don't say that about her. She's really good. You know, and the Buddha's like, no, like, that's not the attitude, you know, that you should have. It's, but it's about the mind. It's not about the actions. Um, and he doesn't, you know, we know what the Buddha's attitude is about violence. I mean, he opposes it, right? He opposes, there's, you know, killing of any kind. But, I th- you know, there's still this kind of somewhat open debate in Buddhism about what is appropriate in, in terms of defending someone physically. And, and we don't, that's not, I will just say, that's not what this sutta is about, even though he uses these very uh, intense images. It's really about your mind, about maintaining a mind of loving kindness. So this sutta has a, a, a few different kind of sections and it kind of evolves. Um, the, after he gets done with Faguna, the Buddha talks about how, how it used to be. He says there was an occasion in the old days, basically, when the, the bhikkhus, when the monks satisfied my mind here I address the bhikkhus thus. I eat at a single session. By doing so, I am free from illness and affliction. Come, bhikkhus, eat at a single sec- session. So he was just saying, you know, I gave him a teaching like, you should just have one meal a day. And they did it. But he said, nowadays, and I was talking about this right this morning, how after more and more monks started to come, they became more unruly and they weren't so uh, devoted and they weren't didn't, listen to him so carefully. So there's this subtle, uh, maybe not so subtle, uh, frustration the Buddha has with the monks. And uh, so he he makes this point and then he uses this image about a a charioteer with his horses and how, you know, they have horses that just are immediately responsive and you don't have to whip them. And you just like, you kind of, you know, Let's go, and they, they go, and it's like, that's the way my monks used to be. I just had to say something. But then, and then he says, he gives this image of a grove of trees that's choked with, with weeds. And it's interesting because he uses it to, he's saying, you, sh- you should abandon unwholesome states. He's describing this, this should be your practice, like to look inside and see where you have like negative qualities that need to be abandoned as as though there were weeds inside but he he uses this simile right after talking about how in his sangha now there are a bunch of people who aren't responding to him and i can't help but think that he's that whether intentionally or unintentionally he's referring to them as the weeds that are choking the the forest, you know. It's just one of those things, uh, again, why it's kind of interesting to read this and and put yourself into the sutta rather than just take it, okay, this is what he said, but to kind of go, no, wait, is there something? He's not saying it overtly, but is he kind of saying, like, I really need to clean out all these lazy monks. 
or unresponsive. So then he uses another story and he's getting at the, all of the, this whole sutta is all about anger and about you know, uh, trying to maintain balance. And in this one, he's talking about what he calls underlying tendencies. So he tells this story of a, uh, a maid who works for a mistress, Vedahika. The maid is named Kali. And Mistress Vedahika is known in the neighborhood for being gentle and peaceful and kind. But Kali, her maid, suspects that underneath her calm exterior is this angry interior. You know, we all kind of know people like this, right? You kind of meet someone and they're kind of acting nice, but you can feel how it's like not really sincere. So Kali starts getting up later and later in the morning and trying to set off Vedahika. And finally Vedahika loses it because she's like, get up, get up. And then finally, like the third day she says, you know, why aren't you getting up? What's the matter with you? And she's like, nothing's the matter with me. And what do you mean there's nothing the matter with you? You get up still later in the day. And she was angry and displeased. And she took a rolling pin and gave her a blow on the head and cut her head, cut the maid's head. And then the maid runs out in the street so the neighbors can see her and say, see, see what she did? You thought she was so nice. It's a really strange story, right? <laughs> For a variety of reasons. First of all, the rolling pin just kills me because it's like something out of the honeymooners, or you know, you just see it's like a some old sitcom, right? Uh, rolling? They had rolling pins in ancient India. I don't know. I haven't seen the. I don't know what the word for rolling pin is in Pali, so I have to trust uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. But even you know, I listened to Bhikkhu Bodhi talking about this, and and even he he says, I'm not sure that Kali by provoking her, is actually behaving in a skillful way. It doesn't really seem like, like, where does she get off? Like, But, uh, you know, the Buddha brings it back again to, uh, and, and here he's focusing on speech. He says, so too, bhikkhus, some bhikkhu is extremely gentle, meek, peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him that it can be understood whether that bhikkhu is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. So it's a good, like, oh yeah, it's easy to be loving and compassionate when you're at New York Insight and you're meditating, you know, and then you go outside and somebody like grabs your purse and you're like, wait, what are you you know, uh, so, oh, okay, wait, that's not really spiritual to just, when you just meditate. And he, he uses this term that I really like, and I, I use this term a lot, easy to admonish. One should be easy to admonish. He says, I do not call a bhikkhu easy to admonish, who is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish only for the sake of getting robes, alms, food, a resting place, and medicinal requisites. So th those are the things that monks are allowed to have, the clothes, the food, the place to live, and, and medicine. He says, a, a bhikkhu is only easy to admonish if they're not getting those things. So, um, what is he uh, so, if, if you're, so basically it's like, even when I'm not getting what I want, 
Can I maintain equanimity? Can I still be loving? Can I be compassionate? Um, and then he gives these five types of speech. Mm. I think I'm going to skip the five types of speech because we need to go into the really juicy part <laughs> to finish up. And, and then I'm going to go through the, the Metta Sutta. Here, he, he has these several similes that build into the kind of climactic one where he is talking about how our, um, how we, our minds should be uh, in relation to any kind of um, uh, like challenge or being admonished or for, you know, anything that's kind of triggering. And these, these images take a little while, uh, take a minute to kind of get. It says, suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth to be without earth. He would dig here and there, strew soil here and there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. What do you think, bhikkhus? Could that man make this great earth be without earth? And all the monks all chant back, no, venerable sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immeasurable. It is not easy to make it be without earth. So he says, so too, bhikkhus should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to the earth, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So this is the image of our mind being totally stable, like the earth. And if somebody tries to cause us to get agitated, we're, it would be like somebody trying to dig up the earth. Like, you can't disturb my mind because it's so stable and solid. You can dig in, into my earth, but it's, you know, I'm much too big and, and stable to be disturbed. So then he gives the same kind of image with the sky. He says, what if somebody tried to paint the sky with crimson, turmeric, indigo, or carmine? Could they paint the sky? And the monks are like, no, venerable sir. He says, right, your mind should be like space. You know, nothing can color it. Nothing can, uh, you know, block it out. You can't, you can't, um, how does he put it? Uh, space is formless and non-manifestive. It is not easy to draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. Our minds, we should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected. We should abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to empty space. So this is another practice that we teach, which, you know, sitting there, just, you know, sit in a spacious mind, right? Nothing can disturb it. Then he does the same, has the same type of image with a man who tries to burn up the Ganges. And it's like, no, venerable sir, one couldn't burn up the Ganges. So your mind should be uh, similar to the Ganges, abundant, exalted. It's like, you know, the oceans or the rivers, nothing, you know, nothing can disturb that. Now, 
one of the things I reflect on in this book is how the Buddha couldn't have imagined that the humans could have actually polluted the air and the rivers and the oceans to the point that actually, you know, we have harmed them in a way that, you know, it almost invalidates his simile here in, in our time, one of the real tragedies of our time. But I, still, I think they're very powerful images because it's really talking about a mind that's so vast and so stable and spacious that it can't be disturbed. And, you know, if you've done retreat practice or done intensive meditation, you know that you get to points of focus and and spaciousness and openness where it feels like that, where your mind can't be disturbed. So finally, he has this last image. And this is the one that gives the title of the sutta, the simile of the saw. Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not be carrying out my teaching. As we say in Alcoholics Anonymous, what an order, I can't go through with it. You know, if someone were sawing off my limbs, you know, this is, uh, and yeah, you know, it's probably not going to happen to us, we hope, but um, it really points to how committed the Buddha is to non-violence, to non-ill will, to non-hatred, and, and the kind of mind that he really wants to suggest. You know, and there are actually stories of martyrs, in various different traditions, including the Buddhist tradition, who have been through similar things of torture without uh, without allowing hate to arise in them. As as impossible as this sounds, um, you know, it's kind of, it's just setting the bar. If you want to know what the bar is, here it is. And I don't take that as a, something then that I should compare myself to, like, oh, I could never do that. I'm not a really good Buddhist. I accept that I'm not a good Buddhist. You know, it doesn't bother me that I'm not a good Buddhist. My mind is unaffected by the fact that I'm not a good Buddhist because I'm a human, you know, and and humans, you know, most of us are just not uh, capable of that. And, you know, it'd be wonderful, you know, to attain that. And And it's a beautiful... Uh, goal to have in mind, but I don't think we're supposed to compare ourselves to it as a way of beating ourselves up, because that's the whole point here. You're not supposed to hate yourself. So, you know, don't hate yourself just because you can't, you know, get your limbs sawed off without getting angry about it. You know, Uh, know, I do have a couple questions, though. These are supposed to be bandits. And presumably they've got all my money and stuff, all my, all my valuables that they've stolen from me. What are they going to do with my limbs? Like, why do they want to saw off my limbs, you know, if they're bandits? Why don't they just take my money and leave? I mean, anyway, that's not addressed in the sutta. 
of starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. So this, it's interesting too how the language come, sometimes moves from the prosaic to the poetic and uh, this is one of those really poetic parts. And I'll say that although eventually in later times uh, there was this meditation practice developed, the loving kindness practice where we focus on particular people and you might be familiar with this structure where you you know, love for yourself, love for your dear ones, love for neutral ones, love for difficult ones, and then radiating. The Buddha never taught the individual things. His teachings are always about radiating. And I'm actually kind of working on that, on, on uh, ways to cultivate loving-kindness uh, as a radiating practice rather than I find that well I, I always teach what I do and what I you know I don't kind of if something doesn't feel or work that well for me I, I don't see much point in me trying to I'll show it to other people but it's not something I'll really try to take very far and I'm not I don't really practice that the individual uh, people kind of meditation, uh, loving kindness meditation to any significant degree. I do it, but more as kind of a, a relatively brief thing. What I like to practice is the radiating practice. And the reason I like that is because it's very physical. And the you can cultivate a kind of uh, bliss state and a really uh, expanded state, a, st a state of real spaciousness in the mind and a feeling of real energy and bliss in the body by doing that. And that then really helps the, the, the concentration and because the concentration states, the deep concentration states, depend upon cultivating uh, what are called um, piti and sukha, which are translated as bliss and meditative joy. And a lot of times it's tricky trying to cultivate bliss and meditative joy because you're trying to cultivate, you're trying to get them. Ooh, I want those, right? And as soon as you want to get them, you don't get them. But if you just practice radiating, that comes naturally. And whereas a lot of times when you start thinking about individual people, the mind gets stuck on stories and gets kind of diverted from just the scent, the feeling of radiating loving kindness uh, that the Buddha really was teaching. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think that's a useful practice. And I, and I know that for some people it's a really, really useful practice. It's just uh, 
I'm kind of, I'm trying to experiment. And, and I was doing it this morning when I taught the loving kindness. Uh, when I was tr- talking about trying to re- really feel that feeling of love in your body and then expand it out and feel it through your whole body. Uh, sometimes when I'm giving meditation instruction, I'm not sure if, you know, if I've had an experience and then I'm trying to tell someone how to do it. <laughs> I'm not sure if telling them how to do it actually does it, you know. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm encouraging you to, to play with that, with this sense of expansiveness and, and radiating and wor- working particularly with the body and kind of, you can kind of, there is this energy. It's kind of what they work with in Kundalini Yoga. It's kind of energy that kind of comes up the spine and through the chakras that you can kind of like let yourself in and it's kind of like a shaky energy and you can kind of breathe it in or kind of uh, visualize it into your body. It's not a visualizing, it's it's a feeling. And anyway, I'm trying to communicate something. So I want to go through the Metta Sutta to, to fi- finish for the day here. Although I should, I, I don't mean to... Uh, cut off any discussion if there if any time there's a question i know a lot of this i've been getting into this kind of the weeds of the suttas so uh and the you know maybe clear out the weeds as the buddha says but if there are any questions or thoughts at this point before i transition into this i'm happy to address them or attempt to address them question is about um, how applicable this is to like, some of these teachings are to us as lay people. Yeah. My question is, like, do you consider yourself a monk? Oh no, I'm not a monk, no. Okay. I'd be wearing different clothes. <laughs> and are these, I mean, are these lessons, are they intended for monks? Or yeah. are they intended for lay That's a really good question. So, uh, certain of the suttas are directed specifically to lay people, and certain of them are directed specifically to monks. And then a lot of them, although he might be talking to monks, they're really meant for everyone. So, whereas the part of the sutta that's about, you know, not associating over much, much with bhikkhunis is not relevant for lay people. The part that's about not being provoked by speech and being easy to admonish and not letting ill will arise is very much for everybody. Um, because the Buddha really, he emphasized over and over the uselessness and in fact harmfulness of anger. He says, when, you bec- when you're angry with your enemy, you are giving your enemy what they want. You are causing yourself suffering. Your enemy wants you to suffer. And so by getting angry, you're giving them what they want. So it's just, this is like a, you know, a theme that's repeated over and over. So absolutely the, 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 the heart of this teaching 
is to be engaged in the world and and because we live in such a uh, you know conflicted world uh, to to not become to not harm yourself with your anger towards the world or those in the world who and there are many people deserving of our <laughs> anger in a sense you know that uh, when people are doing great harm to the world it's it's so natural for us to get overwhelmed with our own anger towards them but this is of course the principle of nonviolence that if we act out of anger towards someone who is doing harm then we are replicating their behavior it's as the buddha says hatred will never cease by hatred but by love alone will anger will hatred cease and of course that's gandhian it's kingian you know this is these are the principles of nonviolence and you know and it's a huge challenge i mean I, you know i get frustrated and angry pretty much every day but i try not to let it uh, I, there's a couple things that i try to do uh, since you're kind of asking I, i'm sort of assuming that maybe you're interested in like how do i deal with this stuff so i'm just going to talk a little bit about that i do a couple things one is that i i i keep a sort of bottom line that um even the people that i find despicable are human beings that are suffering and i understand that people who do things to harm others are actually already harming themselves because the impulse to harm others is is dukkha in itself it's painful in itself so i have that as an underlying understanding and i feel very engaged and concerned and disturbed when i see harm what i perceive as harm and sometimes it's there's no question that's harm but some things are more perception you know when i see that happening and i feel a responsibility to engage in that which i think is equally important you know the organization that really kind of took the lead in this way is the buddhist peace fellowship which was founded by some people who were activists kind of in the 60s but as they got engaged in buddhism they realized that their activism had been so infused with anger that it had been counterproductive and they wanted to bring buddhist principles into activist behaviors and that that is really for me my guiding principle can i bring the the attitudes of compassion into that activism and 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 as i say it's always going to be a challenge but the main thing is to not let that frustration uh take you over to the point that it's causing you harm that it's that's uh, polluting your own life then you're just allowing your enemy to harm you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.